This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. Ephesians 2.10 says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Scott Pollock is back today to conclude our series on grace as he explains how grace is the seed that leads us to do good works, not for salvation, but for spiritual maturity and growth. Scott Pollock is the lead pastor of Faith Bible Church of the Woodlands, Texas, and author of the booklet, Grace, Simple, Profound. At the end of our podcast, we'll tell you how to download a free copy. But for now, let's listen as Pastor Pollock tells us about grace-based discipleship. My, my blood pressure always goes up. If you know what to look for, you can see my ears turn red. That's what happens when my blood pressure goes up. My heart starts to beat a little quicker. My stomach goes into a knot. Whenever I'm in a conversation, particularly a one-on-one conversation, and the conversation leads to the gospel with an unbeliever, with an outsider from the church, an irreligious, unchurched person, and God has given me opportunities to do that literally hundreds of times. When that conversation goes that way and it settles in on Jesus, I know that some hard things and some beautiful things are about to come. And that's when my blood pressure goes up and my ears turn red, my stomach goes into a knot, my pulse quickens, because this is the moment. This is so important, right? The weight and import of that moment. I've gotten to share the gospel with unchurched unbelievers a lot through 22 years of ministry. It's been my privilege Um, A lot of times people have given their faith to Jesus and trusted in him. Many times they haven't responded, right? I want to tell you about Kara, a student who came to our student ministry years and years and years ago when I was a student pastor and who came not as a belligerent atheist, but as a very honest atheist. She was like, yeah, I'm not sure I believe any of this stuff, but I like you people. And uh, sometimes you have food. So, uh, I'll come around, you know, and so, and we loved on Kara and we um, enjoyed her presence and she enjoyed ours and she, she just began to ask questions and uh, with other people as well as myself and I began to try to answer those questions and just love on her and um, provide opportunities for us to have fun together and for her to learn and she would come to Bible study and Sunday mornings, etc. And it was about her senior year when that final conversation came. And it was at a retreat where a bunch of kids were playing ultimate frisbee and sand volleyball. And here are Kara and I sitting on some really dark and tar-stained railroad ties at the edge of the sand volleyball pit. And she was asking some hard questions. And that was when my blood pressure started to go up and my ears turned red and my stomach got into a knot. Because I had to share with her the story that starts with some bad news. And the bad news has to do with words like sin and sinner and death. (laughs) That's not comfortable, right? But it's the truth. And you can't share the gospel without saying those words. You can't share the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ without talking about sin. You can't rub the corners off of it that much. And so I had to say those things to her. And she had to listen. Not because I'm judging her or condemning her. I'm trying to explain to her, Kara, that 
God found us both at the same place, myself included. We are at the bottom of a deep, dark hole. Sin and death and darkness and shadow. That was the bad news. The good news is even better, and that's that God provided a way through Jesus. And you get to get rescued from the hole and forgiven of your sins and adopted into his family as a gift of God's grace. She listened. She understood. And she said, thank you. She stood up and walked away. I wasn't uh, expecting that, but we didn't pray. We didn't kneel down together. She didn't say, how do we do this? You know, it, well, it wasn't that. It wasn't that. Uh, years later, she came back and she said, um, after she had already been through college and um, I think was about to get married, uh, she came back and we ran into each other. And she said, Scott, I want to tell you a story. And um, that is that as I left high school, um, things got worse for me and they got darker until I remembered and realized the things that you were sharing and the things that I had learned in the church, and that's when I trusted in Jesus, and things began to look up from them. And I got a chance to baptize her in a swimming pool at a friend's house with all of her friends surrounding her. It's a beautiful thing. I used to disciple some high school seniors at that same time, and there's about six of them, and we just live life together. It was a, a messy kind of time because some of them, they, they all knew about Jesus. Most of them had trusted in Jesus. A couple of them hadn't, but we just lived life together and we spent hours a week together and uh, we would often, they would often come over to our house before we had kids and I would grill masses of, mass amount of steak and Liza would get nauseous and have to leave and we would all just kind of gather around the table like uh, um, carnivore cannibals and you know, grunting each other and uh, dripping food and stuff and uh, Liza and I can't be here and she would go and read and uh, we would just have Bible study, we'd pray together, we'd play basketball in the driveway, we'd just do life. Um, there was an outsider at the group, a um, friend of theirs at high school named Taylor. And uh, Taylor was in a bad way in science class one day, leaning up against the wall. And one of my guys in my group came up to Taylor and said, what's going on? He said, man, my heart is heavy. My soul is heavy. I don't know really how to explain it. I just am looking out past high school and I can't see anything and I have no joy and I have no foresight and everything seems heavy and dark. And he says, you need to come hang out with Scott and our group. So he started coming and hearing. And I remember at one point sharing the gospel just with Taylor and my ears turn red and my blood pressure goes up and I give him a, one of my Bibles and I write a note in the inside. I give it to him and I say, I know this is a big book and you haven't read it before, but go to John. And I mark John. I said, read through John. He started reading through John and in his, in his bedroom, unbeknownst to me, in his bedroom by himself, praise and trust in Jesus. And then years later, he comes back and tells me that story. Um, and now he and his wife and his two kids are a member of our church here and serving God in, in uh, adult ministries and in men's ministry and all kinds of things, okay? And so I don't know if you've had an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody. I hope you have. I hope you do in the future. But if you're like me, you know the weight and import of that moment. To share both grace and truth together can be really, really critical and sometimes a little difficult to do. To say the word sin, to say sinner, to say death, to say these things and quote these scriptures that are really difficult. To say that you are an enemy of God when God found you. And even your righteous acts are filthy rags before him. But it's not just bad news. It's a lot of good news. And Jesus has come to rescue you, right? I don't know if you've gotten a chance to share that. 
uh, begin, but I hope that you do. What I'd like to talk to you about today is we close our grace series. Five weeks doesn't seem like enough, but it will have to be this round. What I'd like to do is close our series by wrapping up and really talking about how we bring all of this together. And to do so, we're going to go to the, the king of grace passages by the apostle of grace in Ephesians chapter 2. What a fitting way to end our time together by going to perhaps one of the most important, most beautiful, most uh, richly dense and succinct and clear passages in the scripture about grace, Ephesians chapter 2. The big question is, how did, how did grace, how does grace and discipleship fit together for you? We talked about it a little bit, but not very much. What is discipleship and how do we follow Jesus and what does grace say about that? What role does grace play in your discipleship? Ephesians chapter 2 is going to answer, I think, that question in a, in a beautiful way. You may see it coming, you may not expect it, but I think in some of the beautiful language, again, very succinct, very clear, um, Paul's got something to share with us. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. You can memorize this passage with six words. How about that? You memorize the outline of this passage in six words, okay? You were, but God, so that. You were, but God, so that. Can you say that with me? You were, but God, so that. You've memorized the outline of this passage. Now let's hang all of the clothes on the rack here. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Many of you recognize verses 8 and 9. Maybe you've memorized that in Awana or just in sharing the gospel with somebody. But we wanted to read the whole passage. Um, in Greek, it may be one sentence. It's for sure a sentence from verse 1 through verse 7. It may be verse 1 through verse 10 as one complete sentence. Very, very complicated in the Greek text, okay? And so let's remind you where we've been in our series. We started out rather theologically in the first couple of weeks of this grace series, talking about how grace by itself, its very nature, means that it's free and that it's a gift, and how it involves and cooperates with works. And it's not opposed to effort, grace is, but it is very much opposed to the idea of earning. The second week, we talked about how we can be secure in our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and how we can know that we are saved and have assurance of that salvation based on the power of God and the promise of God. Then we got a real uh, relational twist, very practical, and talked about humility in relationships, about how grace 
provides for us the most secure grounds for humility as we relate to each other. Last week, we talked really practically about forgiveness and how since we've been forgiven so much, in Jesus' parable, a $9 billion debt, we can forgive those who owe us mere cents and dollars because we've been forgiven so much, we can forgive. That's the gift of grace. Today, we want to wrap all those things together. Let's look at verse 1. And you were... You remember, we've been saying, and I hope that you've gotten that in your spirit, in your mind by now, that sin does not make you bad. If sin makes you bad, then all you need to do is get better. That's not the gospel message. That's what a lot of people think about sin. It's what a lot of people have thought all the way back to the first century, the time of Jesus, okay? There was a guy named Pelagius who was operative in the 4th and 5th centuries. He was a wrestler, head and shoulders above everybody else. He was from England, and uh, that's what he basically thought. Sin just makes you bad, okay? All you need to do is get better, and you can do that on your own. That's false. It's not true. It's not what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say sin makes you dead. And so, therefore, you don't need to get better. You need to be brought back to life again. And so that you were is bad news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so Paul is speaking this or writing it. He may be speaking it to an amanuensis like a secretary, and secretaries furiously writing it down. Back in those days, they had wax tablets that they could write in and then sort of smooth back over and write in again, it's sort of like a, a notepad. And so an amanuensis may be writing this down. Paul may be writing it. It comes from him. But if he was speaking it, he's like, he's standing up and you can see Paul getting really engaged and he's talking to this church as he's writing this church um, in Ephesus and he's saying, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he interrupts himself. Let me tell you just how dead you were. Let me describe to you the depth of your death, as it were. And it becomes a bit of a parenthetical statement in verses 2 and 3. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan himself, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The main thrust of the sentence is very simple. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then we get to verse 4. But before we get to verse 4, Paul wants to make sure we understand the depth of our death. I can remember several things growing up um, that made national news. Some of them happened in Texas. Some of them happened in the nation. I remember where I was in school when the Challenger shuttle exploded. Many of you remember that. Um, and how we watched that in our library at school and talked about it in class and tried to figure out how everybody was doing and what they took that in. I remember also in 1987, it was October, it happened in Texas. And all I need to say is two words, baby Jessica. Remember that? It was October 14th, 18-month-old Jessica McClure was walking in the backyard of her aunt's house in Midland, Texas, and just took one step too many. And there was a, a long pipe casing in the ground in her aunt's backyard that was open at the top, just a tuft of grass. And she fell down that eight-inch casing 22 feet, one leg up, one leg down. 
Um, and once her aunt found her and heard her whimpers and cries, um, they thought it would be rather quick to get her out. So the Midland police and the fire department and some folks came down and they thought we could get her out in a matter of hours. Well, it didn't turn out that way. October 14th turned into October 15th and 15th turned into October 16th. And it was 58 hours later that a group of drilling specialists and engineers drilled a parallel passage down right and then went laterally and had to use new technology of a water pressure um, cutter so that they didn't get the pipe hot, they didn't burn baby Jessica and doing all of this stuff underground in very, very tight places. And they brought baby Jessica out alive. She's happily married with kids of her own today, age 30. Do you know what the story was not in the news? This was not the story. What a hero that baby Jessica was, crawling her way out of that pipe by herself, inch by inch. She did it all on her own. What a hero. We can all look to Jessica, even a little 18-month-old girl. What a hero she is. That wasn't the story, was it? There was no way she was getting out on her own. There was no possible scenario where that little baby crawls out of the pipe on her own. That is a picture of the depth of our death in trespasses and sins. You and I were dead in our trespasses. There is no possible way we're climbing out of that. There is no possible way we're getting out on our own. That picture fits. So you were dead. Verse 4, but God. That word but is just two letters in Greek, but wow, how big of a word is that? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but that's not the end of the story. That's not where God left you. That's not what God allowed to be the final chapter in your life, in the history of the world, but God. Two really, really big words, but God. It wasn't but we, right? We were dead, you were dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then verse four, but you got better, right? But you found a way. But you solved the puzzle. But you figured it out. No, it's not that. It's but God. And in this long sentence, that's the only subject in the sentence. God himself. That is the only subject, and there's only three main verbs. God is the subject, and only three main verbs, and we haven't even read them yet. They come in verses 4, 5, and 6. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. First verb, made us alive together with Christ. Parenthetical statement again, by grace you have been saved. Second verb, and raised us up with him. Third verb, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, he made us alive together with Jesus. Why did we need to be made alive? Because we were dead. He made us alive together with Jesus. He he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. I love the depth of what we're struggling with here because um, what these verbs do is put us with Jesus. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I I want to show you something. 
I want you to figure out the places and how many times he says the phrase in Christ or in him or in Jesus. Just in this passage that we read. Let's look at it. Verse 6. Raise us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that the ages to come, we might, we'll get to that in a second, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay? Verse 10. For he is workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This phrase is very, very important for Paul. If you know Ephesians chapter 1, that's where he lays the groundwork. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have an inheritance. In him we are sealed. In him, in him, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, over and over and over again. Paul uses that phrase to describe the state of where we find ourselves when grace is extended to us through our faith in Jesus. We are found then and forevermore in him. When we are justified, we are placed in him. When we are saved, we are placed in him. And so he uses these phrases and ones like it with him very, very powerfully. But God made us alive together with Christ. Similar phrase, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now look at the third part, verse 7, so that, right? You were, but God, so that. You were dead, but God rescued you by grace. Why? Look at verse 7. This is amazing. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Think about that for a second. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing wealth of his grace in Christ. This is actually where we get the idea of the iceberg image, the graceberg is what we've been calling it, right? That illustration is very, very simple and beautiful. Most people understand that uh, folks on the Titanic and everybody else who's seen an iceberg floating, um, what sticks up above the water is only a small percentage of what is in truth below the water. You see that, you don't see what's below. It may come towards you hundreds and hundreds of yards before you actually see it hit and break the surface of the water on the horizon. The below part is bigger. It's perhaps very, very different than the above part. So this idea, listen, so that in the ages to come, this is the point of God pouring out his grace on us. Stick with me because this is pretty cool. What are the ages to come? Well, it's either from now until Jesus comes back or when Jesus comes back till when eternity starts or from now until then, until eternity forever. I like the from now until forever part. It's just very simple, okay? The ages to come, from now until forever. God will be revealing more and more and more of the surpassing wealth of his grace. Do you know what that means? That means that you and I, when we're 10,000 years in heaven and we realize that verse in uh, Amazing Grace... Right? Like, we're at that point. That's today. All right? That's, that's right now. Okay. That we'll still be chipping away at the surface of God's grace because it's surpassing in its depth, in its weight, in its meaning. That from now until forever, he will still be revealing to us the undeserved gift that you and I live in, the beautiful facets. Oh, I didn't know that it meant that much. Oh, I didn't know that it spoke into that area of my life. Oh, I didn't know that it meant that too. 
the surpassing depth of the grace of God. That's an amazing passage. You were dead, but God rescued you so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Now, in that scenario, let me ask you a question. Who gets the attention? Who gets the praise? Who gets the glory? Who gets the spotlight? Isn't it Jesus? Isn't it God? You see, that's how it's supposed to be. It's amazing. So we get to sit there together and stand there together and say, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe you are here. I'm pretty sure you weren't going to be here, but you're here too, you know? (laughs) This is amazing. Who's to blame for all this? Who's responsible? Oh, it's that one who poured out an amazing amount of grace that we're still trying to understand, that we're still trying to wrap our heads around. Have you struggled in this series? Real question. Don't raise your hand or shake your head. That'd be embarrassing. But have, have you struggled as we've talked about some of these things? Have you read some of the words in our grace study booklet? I hope that you have. Not because I want to cause any difficulty in your life, but because unless you start to ask those questions like this, is this really true? Can this really be how it is? Unless you ask questions like that, I don't think you and I have understood grace in truth because it has a surpassing wealth and riches to it. And it's always bigger than we think it's going to be. Can you work too much? Yeah, I think you probably can. Can you eat too much? Yeah, probably can. Can you rest too much? Yeah, you probably can. Can you drink too much? Sure. Can you love too much? Probably not. I've never had that as an um, application point in a counseling situation in my office, you know. Hey, you know, I think I know what your problem is. I think I finally figured it out. You love way too much. Can we start talking about some of your enemies? Let's really focus on your hate. Try to expand that a little bit, balance out your love. Can we do that? Can anybody love too much? When I met Jesus in college, I was washed over with maybe the first taste I got of what love really meant. God's love for me and then a feeble attempt for me to return that love to him. And I just thought, wow, this is love. Then I met Liza and I realized, wait a second. I mean, yeah, that's God's love for me and my love for God, but I've never understood a a human relationship like this. And this is what love means. Whoa. And then my son was born and it messed me up, man. Seriously. I saw him and I was like, what is, what is happening to my heart right now? I don't even, I, I would do anything for you and it's going to be this way forever. And I was like, what is happening? And then I thought, okay, cool. My, my love's getting better. Then my daughter was born. It's a little girl. And she looks like me. Oh, and it's getting bigger, right? And so love, can you love to? I don't think you can, but as you walk into love, you find that it's always deeper. There's another room with another door and you keep walking and there's always more. It's the same way with God's grace. It's the same way with God's grace. And you and I will always be walking into another room of it. The surpassing riches of his grace. From now until forever, he'll be showing us that. Can you imagine? As a student, I studied and studied and studied geography of Israel and the uh, Sea of Galilee. I know exactly how many miles it takes in circumference and how many miles it is east to west and north to south. And I could plot out for you a map of all the cities in the time of Jesus and where they were and who came from there. It's very, very different than going there my first time. 
and standing on the shore as the sun came up. There's not much to say at that point. Not much to say. The surpassing riches of his grace to be poured out on us, okay? Um, It's actually going to get a little better. Verse 8. This is what everybody recognizes, and these are the two verses in which you probably know. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is what we've been talking about. This is the heart of it all, the beginning of it all, the doorway into all of these things, that God has rescued you, forgiven you, declared you to be righteous, adopted you into his family, calls you his own as a gift of his grace, free gift. Only one condition, your faith. For by grace you have been saved, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. You place your faith in Jesus and trust in him, and all that he has accomplished and provided for you is now activated into your life and is given to you as a free gift. Now here's where people struggle. Look at what it goes from here. For by grace you have been saved, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. A lot of people take that word that and apply it to the faith. You see, we can't even put faith in God of ourselves. He's got to do some work in us, and he's got to give us the gift of faith to do that. The problem with that interpretation is it's not very biblical, and it's not very grammatical for this text. That word that is in the neuter gender, and and faith here is feminine. So the that can't refer to faith Because if Paul was trying to make that connection, and they always do, they make it grammatically in gender. So that, what is it referring to? That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. By the way, the gift is in neuter, gender. So that goes with gift, but what is it? Well, it's the gift of salvation as a whole. That's by grace. It's not the faith. See, that's the faith and response that God asks of us. And faith isn't a work. How do I know that? Because that's what it says. Look, and not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If somebody works for a gift, it's not called a gift, it's called a wage. But if someone wants to give someone a gift, what is that action required of the other person? Reception. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's what you do with a gift. You receive it. So the heart of this discussion is very, very important. But our question today is not about how grace works in faith. Our question is how grace and discipleship fit together. Now we're going to bring all this together in verses 10. Verse 9 and 10. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Verse 10. So that we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship. Workmanship is a beautiful word. In Greek, it's poema. I'm just trying to impress you. Um, Poema is where we get um, our word uh, probably poem from. But it's not necessarily a, a written form of that. What that word really means is the product of an artisan. Have you been to a specialty shop? Maybe an Amish furniture store? Where they work on all of this stuff by hand. No electric tools, no screws, no nothing, right? And you look at the craftsmanship that they're putting these things, these cabinets, these chairs, these rocking chairs, these tables. Uh, Wow. I'm always the guy that's on the ground looking up. How do they do that? Right? Have you been to an artist exhibition of painting on canvases in a way that you're thinking, if I studied the rest of my life, I couldn't do that. Right? 
Have you gone to a, an opera or a ballet or a symphony and you say, here's the greatest uh, expression of these arts coming together, people who have trained for decades and they're bringing all of this together in this beautiful artistic way. It's the product of an artisan. That's what God says you are and I am. For we are His workmanship. God's been working on us. It's a masterpiece, a trophy of His grace. Now, watch this. If you can stick with me here, this is all I want to show you, really. I, I'm, 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 I do a long preface, I know. Uh, we've finally gotten to the point. You know me well, right? Okay. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. You see? Created in Christ. We've already said that that in Christ thing is really important. It talks about our place in Him, the place of our salvation, being justified, being saved. Uh, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Could we say in this way, we are his workmanship, a new creation because we're saved. Recreated, as Paul would say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You are a new creation when you're found in Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That's in him. Now watch. For good works. Where do the good works flow from? They're not before salvation as a way of earning it, because that's what it says in verse 9. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We already said the scenario in heaven where we're talking about the surpassing riches of God's grace forever and ever, the spotlight's on him. If somebody got there on their own and said, I crawled my way out of the pipe inch by inch, the spotlight would be on us and there would be reason to boast. But there's not reason to boast because it's not by works. But we are Christ, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That means that our discipleship flows out of the seed of grace, doesn't it? Doesn't it mean that grace is the seed of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth? It's that that flows out in a river of obedience in the middle, in the center of God's will of good works. I think that's what it just says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That word walk is really, really important. Mentioned only two times in chapter two, once in the negative, once in the positive, and then a whole bunch of times in chapter four, five, and six, because that's where Paul gets to sanctification, discipleship, walking with Jesus in obedience. So how does grace and discipleship fit together? It fits together like hand in glove. Grace is the seed of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. It's the doorway into which all of this happens. It's as if in, only in that moment does good works and an obedience even become possible for us. Once God has rescued us by his grace and we are found in Christ, recreated, a new creation in that moment and now spent forward in good works. Discipleship is important. We hope you understand that our path of discipleship, which we've been talking about for a couple of months now, is um, found in what we hope is a very, very simple way of understanding it. It's called Faith Path, and I hope you've seen that. Um, it's two parts. It's a map, a discipleship map, and an online content, and it's thefaithpath.org. And this series has touched at least two of those circles in understanding grace better and practicing grace with others. But grace fuels all of those things. 
And grace is the seed for all of those things. I've been rescued. How about you? Now, I don't have a story where, you know, my helicopter crashed in the Andes or uh, I fell down a pipe or I was spelunking one day and my rope broke. I don't have something, story like that, right? Uh, I don't even know what spelunking is, actually. So, um, um, I, I've been rescued nonetheless. And when I was rescued, it's not that a, a mounted police found me in the middle of the forest, because surviving uh, the Canadian forest by myself, I would have had better chances of surviving than surviving where God rescued me from. And that was from the depth of death itself because of my trespasses and sin. So I've been rescued. You know what I can't conceive of, even though I've had the thought, I can't conceive of being rescued out of the depth of that death and then saying to God of that gift, oh, cool, thanks for that. We're like, we're good now, right? Fire insurance, all, all is covered, cool. Uh, now I'm just gonna go live how I want because uh, I'm taken care of, right? We're good. I've been declared righteous. I'm secure. I'm sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm just going to go live it up now. Do what I want. You only got one life here, right? YOLO, God. Come on, let's do it, right? I, I've never conceived of that idea in practical reality. Yes, I've thought of it. Yes, I've been tempted to sin every moment of every day. Yes, I've fallen into sin a lot. So have you. But I can't conceive of what Jude talks about in his very, very short letter, verses four, five, and six, that take the grace of God, the gift of God's grace, and to misrepresent it and change it into a license to do whatever I want. He says, why would you do that? Paul says it in Romans six. Yes, God has rescued you by grace. Does that mean that you can just go out and live the way you want? He's like, you guys are fools if you think that. Fools. Don't do that. I can't conceive of that reality in my life. I hope that you don't either. You're misunderstanding grace if you do. You're misunderstanding grace and truth in Jesus if you do. But grace is free. It's not the same as earning. It's not the same as owing or earning to keep or proving. It's a free gift. And we walk in it, and as the seed of grace sprouts in our life, all of these good works and discipleship and sanctification and spiritual growth and spiritual maturity happen. That's what I want for my life. I'm, times of my life, I'm seeking that more than other times. There are times in my life that I seem to be banging on all cylinders and following God in that direction, and there's sometimes that I'm at idle. Sometimes I'm even walking in the opposite direction, so are you. But that is where God wants us, to follow him in the, that direction, in a grace-based discipleship. That's what Jesus calls us to. And grace is the seed of all spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and that's what he wants to do in your life. It's free. It's secure. It's assured for you. And it spurs you on towards intimacy with him and towards a life of joy and freedom. And that's found in discipleship, following after Jesus. You've been listening to Pastor Scott Pollock. 
We pray the surpassing riches of God's amazing grace have motivated you throughout this series to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ and to come alongside them in discipleship. We have a tool to help you in those conversations. Scott has made available to you his free e-booklet, Grace, Simple, Profound. You can download it at gsot.edu forward slash simple grace. That's gsot.edu forward slash simple grace. Download your copy today. We're so glad you've tuned in. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.